Nasso. This afternoon, we, we return to settling the mind in its natural state. And as you're probably anticipating, the attempt here will be to make sure that we're not leaving anything out, that we're never just kind of stalled or disconnected or bewildered about not knowing what to do, right? So we'll be attending to the foreground, the events, the thoughts and images that arise more objectively, attending to the more subjective impulses that arise, emotions, desires, intentions, but then also really learning how to attend to and not just space out when, as closely as we attend to the space of the mind, we're just not picking up any content. It seems like just a sheer vacuum, an absence of appearances. Good, observe that because you're not observing nothing, you're observing something, and it's called the space of the mind. And if you can maintain a flow of knowing, even though you don't know much, you know enough, you know, you know what you're attending to, if you can sustain them, then that's good enough. That's good enough. So that will be the strategy we followed this afternoon. But let's contextualize a little bit. I, a note was left under my door, which is very relevant to this practice, practice at large, but very, very relevant to this one. And that is the role of desire. And it's very easy to, again, throw out baby with bathwater, it's very easy to go to extremes, very, very easy. And so on the one hand, we hear statements, I'm sure you've heard me quote before, from the Buddha that practice as if your hair is on fire. That would suggest an intense longing, an intense desire, intense yearning to achieve, achieve something, achieve liberation. You know. So that's definitely something you don't have yet, like to get it in future, like to get it as quickly as possible. So there it is. There just really isn't any denying that that's part of the Buddha's teachings, right? Um, and so the notion of achievement is definitely there. And when it comes to the Buddhist teachings on the first jhana, he speaks about the, the benefits of achieving the first jhana, the second, the third, fourth, inspiring people, encouraging people, aspire for this, wish to achieve it. This will be to your benefit. And then on that basis, go beyond that into vipassana and really cut suffering at its root. We hear about the cultivation of the four immeasurables. This would be something wonderful to realize, to experience. In other words, one could say, actualize, achieve, achieve you know, attain. And so it's there, on the one hand, at the same time when these same verbs, achieve, attain, aspire, strive, maybe even the goal of liberation, the goal of achieving liberation and perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. How can one say that's not a goal? It hasn't happened yet, hopefully happen in the future, and we're striving for it, so there it is. So this runs through the teachings in the Pali Canon, the Mahayana, you find it in Zen, you find it in East Asian Buddhism, Chan, you find it in Vajrayana, you find it in Dzogchen as well, on the one hand. And we all know that we can absolutely tie ourselves up in the knots with that kind of thing. You know, are we there yet? How far have I progressed? I'm not progressing as fast as I wanted to. How long will it take? Have other people achieved it? Can I do it as fast as they can? Maybe I can do it faster. All of this thinking that just is like throwing sand in your carburetor, it just makes the whole thing going to meltdown. So I've been told for years from my, my, Theravada, my, my Theravada guru, Balangoda uh, Andana Maitreya, when he was teaching me mindfulness of breathing back in 19, what was it, 1981, 8081, uh, strongly emphasizing when you do the practice, just do it. Don't try, don't strive, just don't aspire, don't wish for something, just when you're doing it, just do it. So, and then Gyatra Rinpoche telling me the same thing with respect to this practice, settling the mind in its natural state. He told me, you're practicing with too much desire. I said, what kind of desire? 
And I thought I was practicing well. Yeah, you're practicing with too much desire for the goal, for, for benefits. You're kind of in the midst of the practice. You're still wanting something, wanting something. Cool it, chill. So I won't, I won't follow, follow through with that conversation. Many of you have heard it before on the podcast and so forth. But let, let's try to find a balance here. On the one hand, I mean, these are not different spiritual paths. This is a man who is incredibly accomplished in Theravada Buddhism. He was really one of the greatest in Sri Lanka, perhaps the greatest. He was really renowned, Malangana Anamaitreya. Anybody who knows Sri Lankan Buddhism, from the latter half of the 20th century, he's a very, very large name. So I was just very fortunate, like a stray dog that wandered in and he gave me food, you know. And Gyatsunamacha also, lineage holder, one of the senior lamas. And so we have that and we have the teachings of the Buddha. So there has to be some meaningful integration between the two. And I will suggest a way to find that, that middle way, that we're not just going into just no desire, no aspiration, no wish to achieve anything, and not then getting ourselves, our knickers in a twist, binding ourselves up with unfulfilled desire, ambitions, goals, and so forth. And the way I think to start would be to just recognize the fact that if we look at our own existence here as human beings and understand this in the Buddhist framework, then this dimension of reality, this world that we find so familiar, this is the world, in Buddhism this is called the kamadhatu, the desire realm, the desire realm. Gamadatu, desire realm, which is to say that we animals, everybody living in this world that we're familiar with, our lives are just driven by desire. They're driven by desire when we're dreaming. Finally, we go unconscious. Then not much to be, to be desiring as soon as we wake up. What's the first thing that happens when you wake up? You're desiring something. Maybe you want to drink a water. You need to go to the bathroom. But desires are moving us, moving us throughout the course of the day. And not just for little things, like I think I'll, th think I'll go to the toilet now, but for the big things. Shall you get married? Shall you get this education? Shall you, marry? Shall you get this kind of job and move there and acquire this and so forth? So the notion of desires, of aspirations, of goals and acquisitions, things to achieve. If you enter, get, start getting an education, would you like to achieve that diploma? Yeah, why, why would you be here if you, don't want the if you don't want to carry it through to the end, right? You want a job, you want a house, you want a happy marriage, you want children who are healthy and happy and so forth. These are all achievements. What, can we, you know, what's, what else should we call them? And so the whole notion of achievement, of attainment, of desire, of goals, just saturates our lives already, already. So it's not a matter of, oh, do I want it or shall I just stop? Because it's already there. It's absolutely ingrained in our attitudes, our aspirations, all that moves us through life. So there it is. So in the midst of that, of this overwhelming rush, almost like a dam that's broken, and just this, this cascade of desires, almost all of which are desires about things within this context of this life, what Buddhists call mundane desires, desires of this life, right? That have, if there's any if, there's any continuity of consciousness after this life, the desires, by definition, desires of this life for eight mundane concerns, so, so forth, for wealth, for pleasures, for praise, for status, for power, and so forth, those desires and the fulfillment or lack of fulfillment of the desires, actually, as soon as you hit that discontinuity of death, on the far side, they have no, no relevance at all. Once you're dead, how much money you had before you're dead, you really don't care anymore, because other people are scrambling for it. Your heirs, the foundations, whatever. In fact, one of my teachers, one of my teachers passed away, a number of my teachers passed away. 
But when it passed away, it had a little, nice little hut in the mountains above Dharmasala. And then his tuku was identified. And some of his followers said, that hut he, last, he owned last lifetime, that belongs to the next one. That didn't go over too well. <laughs> People who had some claim to that hut said, wait a minute, that's how the inheritance goes? Not only to your children, but your next tuku? And in fact, of course, in monasteries, that's true. When you had a tuku as the abbot of a certain monastery, the tuku dies, is reborn, then his little tuku, he gets all the stuff from the last one. Right? Very cool kind of inheritance rule. But apart from that, you know, when you die, whatever fame you had, however many people loved you, how many acquisitions you had, how many pleasures you've experienced, all of that is now just simply worth nothing. As you're facing death right in the face, then now all of that stuff means nothing. And if death is termination, okay, now you're just facing total nothing, nothing, because nothing is relevant beyond death, because you won't exist except for perhaps the legacy you left behind. Maybe there was some benefit there, but for you, you're just terminated. But if there's continuity of consciousness, continuity of consciousness, then all those desires could be very, very meaningful within the context of this life and have zero meaning beyond. It can be very, very useful to have a lot of money. You can be very generous, you can help multiple, oh, so many people. So having, having some fame, that can be useful. You can use it like a tool. That could be useful. Having prestige, that can be useful. Right? So that can be, you can use them for good things. But as soon as you're dead, then it's finished. No more of that. Right? So there are two interrelated issues here. And that is when it comes to Dharma practice, is it even worth bothering about? Even worth thinking about? Let alone trying to understand, let alone challenging one's assumptions and so forth about what happens when I die? Because it would be so much nicer just to be an observer standing outside of reality and wondering, I wonder what happened when Cecil dies. Let's watch. I'm quite curious. You know. Thank goodness I'm not part of this bishop. You know. that, would be, that would be really nice. You know, just kind of t- take it as kind of like watching somebody else play poker. You know. I wonder if you'll win or you'll win. Let's see how it turns out. But when you recognize, whoa, I don't remember agree- agreeing to be party to all of this, but it looks I'm a, like I'm a full-fledged participant in reality. And of this something's going to happen to me. And there are some people, very intelligent people, some of them, but they don't even worry about it. Don't worry about it. If you're practicing Dharma, don't worry about it. Just be in the present moment. Live well. Live you know, ethically. Be right in the moment. Whatever happens at death, uh, it'll take care of itself. No problem. Just don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. Don't have a view. Continuity, no continuity. Continuity for some people, not for other people. Uh, never mind. Who knows anyway? You know? and just have everything just in the present moment. And I understand the, the appeal of that, simplifies things. What's not often mentioned, though, is that if one takes that stance, with some, some friends of mine, very sincere, very good people, they take that view, and I respect them. But I do differ. And that is, if one takes that view with respect to spiritual practice, that I won't even think about death, it's not relevant, whatever happens, it's later, not my business, not my problem is that while you just kind of suspend that, maybe, maybe just suspend that, then the values you brought to your Dharma practice in the first place, the priorities, the kind of desires, the goals, the things you wish to achieve and so forth, they're all, in all likelihood, they're all mundane. Because that's what we learn in our education system in this modern world, the media and so forth. The aspirations that are out there that everybody's scurrying after, they're all mundane. They're all within the context of this life. 
So if you have, if you don't, you say, never mind death, I don't care about it, I, I'm not interested, whatever happens, it will happen, it's later anyway, then what you're doing basically is you're leaving all of your set of priorities, your values or aspirations, untouched, which means they're all going to be locked into this life, which means they're all going to be absolutely relevant when you die. And if there's continuity, you've invested, in a, you've invested your whole life in a very short-term account. And now you have everything to flow. Now maybe that was a very virtuous life, good. But one thing it doesn't have is direction. And in the early Buddhism, Pali Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and so forth, we come back to this theme that we've heard before. And it is not something just I'm emphasizing. It's all over the place. And that is the significance of motivation. right? Motivation, what's your view? What's your path? Where are you going? What direction? Where are you navigating? right? And then at the end of the practice, the dedication, that's all about, it really have to, has to do with path, right? But if you say, never mind, never mind, then you won't have a path. You may have a very virtuous life. That's good. You don't need to believe in anything about reincarnation or termination to have a virtuous life, which means you can have, if a virtuous life, in the Buddhist view, you can have a, a, a virtuous life next time as well. But will there be any continuity, any real spiritual evolution, any maturation, any progressing along a path from lifetime to lifetime if that was never a priority? never became a motivation, never became something you committed to. So simply virtue with no dedication, with no direction, virtue then manifests in the Buddhist understanding karmically as well-being, but then the well-being, like petrol in, a, in, in your gas tank, it's exhausted and then you're finished. So this is why from all the teachings I've received, this motivation, taking a long view that brings you right back to the present. From now until I achieve perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, and then the aspiration. Then you are setting a trajectory to the culmination, whether it takes three lifetimes or three countless eons, there's a thread, there's a continuity, there's a path. And that's why it's done. Now this is not to say, oh, you have to believe in reincarnation, but it is a reason why one might want to take it seriously, the reality of death before it happens, and so that you know what you're betting your life on. Because if you don't question it, you're bet betting your life on the hypothesis that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's what you're betting your life on. What if it does? Then you miss your butt. You've missed your bet. But you've not just bet one life, you've let bet the next life and the next life and left la next life as well. So now let's just come back within the context of this life. And that as we have a certain type of activity that we engage in, among many. So spiritual practice, that's a certain range of activities. And there are a lot of other activities that are not spiritual practice. right? And then within spiritual practice, within that broad domain, wide variety of meditation, including shamatha. Within shamatha, wide variety, including settling the mind in its natural state. But now if we bring to mind, just bear in mind, the fact that just the person, the, the whole set of values and priorities and desires, hopes and fears and so forth, that we're bringing a very complex system to sitting down and practicing settling the mind in its natural state. We're not coming in as a tabla rasa. We're coming in with a lot of desires all over the place, most of us, right? And so why then would you sit and watch your mind for even 24 minutes when there's so many other things you could be doing? If you have no particular desire to achieve shamatha, no particular desire to achieve anything, um, then why would you do this? 
And the answer could be, because I'd like to have a more stable mind, a clearer mind, I'd like to have greater insight into the nature of the mind. That's good. That's good. That's enough. That's enough to start. But just imagine there is such a thing as achieving shamatha. Let's be really wild and crazy here. Let's just imagine that it is possible in today's world for people just like us to achieve shamatha. If we have the proper environment, good companions, qualified teacher, motivation, discipline, ethics, and so forth, we bring, in other words, the outer and the inner combinations together. Just let's be really wild and crazy for a moment. Let's imagine that in the year 2012, 2013, this is still as possible as it ever was. And let's just be, again, wild and crazy and consider the possibility that maybe these thousands of accounts we have from previous people who have achieved it, that they're true. Once you've achieved shamatha, you've broken through to extraordinary, exceptional, Olympic-class sanity that you can keep for the rest of your life. And you can apply to every endeavor you do from that time on. Artistic, engineering, business, science, mathematics, music, art, and oh yeah, meditation. Like vipassana. And now you're bringing this marvelous mind, this serviceable mind, relaxed, stable, clear. You can bring this to bodhicitta, the four immeasurables, vipassana, stage of generation, stage of completion. You could be like a kid in a candy store with a great big bag. You know, like, what can't I do now? I've got a mind that actually works. This is a suitable vessel for really realizing and breaking down all the barriers and the four immeasurables, achieving spontaneous, authentic bodhicitta, becoming a bodhisattva, gaining direct realization of emptiness, of vipassana practice, insight practice, stage of generation, stage of completion. Now it's all feasible. I've got a mind that works. You know, that would be quite splendid. But why would one ever put in the time an hour a day? Sure, why not? 20 minutes a day? 24 minutes a day? Sure. An occasional 10-day retreat? Why not? But why would, one, why would anybody ever take off a year, two years, or even longer to realize shamatha unless there was a great aspiration, a great desire? And here's the deal. We have so many other desires. So which desire trumps which desire? Right? Because one desire is bound to trump another. You've got only a finite amount of time left. And so how are you going to spend your time? And so we have a myriad of desires. And so this strong emphasis in Buddhism, and I'm about to slowly wrap up here, this strong emphasis in Buddhism, we find it in all schools, of developing a great passion, a great yearning to, to achieve whatever it may be. Satori, stream entry, shamatha, bodhicitta, stage of generation, Breakthrough to pristine awareness. These are all achievements. What can one say? The emphasis on that, and speaking as we find these great enlightened beings throughout history have spoken of the benefits of such spiritual realization. Why are they doing that? So that we aspire for that more than anything else. So that all the other desires, oh, it'd be nice to be wealthy, be nice to have, be nice to have kids who love me, be nice to have you know, all that stuff, a bunch of, a bunch of stuff, but as the Dalai Lama commented when he was asked whether, whether he's ever attracted to women, he said, yeah, sometimes I think, nice. You know? And so that would imply some desire, well, attractive. And then what comes in? But I'd rather be a monk. In the waking state and the dream state, I'd rather be a monk. So there's something he desired more. There's the attractive woman, yeah. But there's something I desire more, and that's to be a good monk. Right? So one to trump the other. But if you don't have anything to trump, if you have nothing in the spiritual domain to trump your mundane concerns, then they will trump in the absence of any competition. 
So that's the idea. If we just shift, and this is, these are universal truths. When I was a graduate student, I read Augustine, St. Augustine, in some detail. And there was a whole book about his theology, quite a marvelous book called Amor Dei, The Love of God. And I won't elaborate it on it much, but I will just say this. When he speaks of the love of God, Augustine, he said, when he speaks of the love of God, what that meant for him was simply the passionate yearning to know God. That's what it actually meant. The passionate yearning to know God, experientially, directly, face to face. And he characterized God as the unchanging light. Okay? But a passionate yearning, and he said the whole of the spiritual life is simply a prioritization of desires. It's not to say that all your other desires vanish. Now you want to know God, so you don't, you don't, you don't want water when you're thirsty, you don't want food when you're hungry, you don't want a toilet when you need to go to the bathroom. No. The other desires are there, but now they all fall into place. They fall into place to the most trivial desires, more important desires, very important desires, most meaningful desires, and then the desire of all desires, the top of the pyramid, the pinnacle, the passionate yearning to know God, and that is Amar Dei. Well, that's in the Christian tradition, the theistic tradition. If we take the Mayana tradition, for example, what's on the top of the pyramid? What's the pinnacle? What's the cherry on top? It's bodhicitta. It's bodhicitta, that passionate yearning to realize perfect awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. And all other desires fall into place, just right down to the most trivial. But that's the desire, desire, and then that trumps all the other ones. But it doesn't say now don't desire anything else. It means now all the other desires have a place relative to bodhicitta, but they're subservient to bodhicitta. So it comes back to the theme I've made a number of times. There's nothing wrong with hedonic desires, wanting to have a nice meal, enjoy a beautiful sunset, companionship, perhaps marriage, perhaps having children, having a, a meaningful job. There's nothing wrong with those. Those are not bad desires. Right. But all of the hedonic desires are in the service of the eudaimonic. True in Christianity, true in Hinduism, true in Buddhism. It's true, true of, of Aristotle. It's true of the wisdom traditions around the world. That there is value in the hedonic desires, but not as ends in themselves. If you do, if you believe that, then you're mistaken, and you'll find out sooner or later. But there's value of them so that they can prepare you to launch in the pursuit of genuine happiness. So there it is. There's the desire to arouse passionate yearning, perhaps to achieve, and I'm not telling you what you should desire, just talking about dharma, but perhaps a passionate yearning to achieve shamatha, bodhicitta, realization of emptiness, whatever it may be. And, and in that passionate yearning, that unification, that samadhi in desire, that samadhi in motivation, samadhi in aspiration, then it's like the sun coming out and all the stars fading back into the background. They're, they're still there, but they fade out. And now one finds, and I've seen this many times, genlam rimba, one of the happiest times of his life, one of my teachers, you recall. You remember that? When he was a fresh refugee, just come down from India, from Tibet. And there were these great masters in Dalhousie, a hill station up in northern India. Really one great master after another. Teor Gyopanamuchi was there. Shakugenyima was there. Oh, they were incredible. They were straight from Tibet. They were the, they were incredible. And Gyanlamrimba was a relatively young monk, a young man. And he knew this is where the real masters are. They were really worth training with, both for meditation as well as for theory. And so he went there. He went there, and he had a, what was it, just like, I don't know, maybe it's 10 kilos, 10 kilos of brown flour per month that he got from the U.S. government because he was a refugee. That was his stipend. That was his food. 
But there was no place to stay in Dalhousie. It was a small hill station. A lot of monks had already gathered to study with these great masters who were there. And so what did he do for those two, three years, however long he stayed? He lived under a rock. He lived under a rock at about 2,000 meters, where the monsoons are really heavy in the winter, in the, in the summer, and the winters are cold. They're cold and wet, kind of icy, sleek cold. And he said those were two, of the, two, two, three of the happiest years of his life, living under a rock with a sack of brown flour. So he was willing, frankly, to make any sacrifice necessary to be able to train under the guidance of these incredible masters. And he did. And then after some time, he was, his, his heart was really moving back to Dharamsala, where there's the Dalai Lama, the senior tutor, Ling Rinpoche, junior tutor, Dijan Rinpoche, and these other, again, there's a whole assembly of these masters, again, fresh out of the oven from Tibet, you know. They were there, and he just felt he really wanted to be in greater proximity with His Holiness. Because when he's giving teachings, then he could be there, you know, and be living there, and with these other masters as well. But then he thought, if I go there, I'm going to give up my security. <laughs> and his security was the 10, the 10 kilos of atta he had each month. Because he had a food line. He got that little sack of brown flour every month. If he went to Dharamsala, that would be cut. It didn't, you couldn't transfer it from one town to another. So if he went to Dharamsala, he'd have no food. And of course, he'd have no place to stay either. No guarantee of a nice rock. And I'm not talking about a cave. I mean just a rock you know, that he could be under, protecting from sleet and snow and so on. But he thought about it, he thought about it, and he said, oh, I've got to go. He said, if I have to just beg door to door, I'll just beg door to door. But I really want to be near those teachers. I want to receive those teachings. And so he gave up his security, his monthly stipend. Went to Dharamsala, ready to beg door to door. It's the lowliest of the low. Never missed a meal. Eventually, and I had not only one, but two meditation huts. Nouveau riche. <laughs> and he lived there for years. He lived there for years. Until we invited him to the Pacific Northwest in the United States. He led a one-year retreat, and so on. And then he finished his life in Sikkim, again in retreat, in a little, a little cottage there. But people don't make that kind of sacrifice. They just don't make that sacrifice. Why would you? Why not live? Why not do pujas for people and get some nice donations coming in regularly and invited to people's houses, and get a lot of praise, and you're such a wonderful monk and you know a little. Why not just? It's so much easier. It really wasn't that hard being a monk among Tibetans because they support their monks. Why would he do that? Well, he wouldn't have done that unless there was a great longing, a great yearning, a great aspiration, a great desire to achieve liberation enlightenment, bodhicitta, and so forth. So there it is. The sacrifice won't happen, and the sacrifice doesn't happen. You won't achieve it. If you think you'll just kind of take shamat as a hobby, and I'll practice it in between television programs, and when there's nothing else to do. Well, you can, of course, but to think that you'll achieve anything significant is silly, except for you'll have a nice hobby. Right? So that's why. But now let's look at the other side of the ledger, and I will stop. You believe me, don't you? <laughs> when you're practicing, so let's imagine that you've, you've looked at all the hedonic pleasures and you see that for yourself, no longer any appeal. You see the possibility, and also you've gotten the taste of genuine happiness, of eudaimonia. You really are tapping into your own resources. You see this is really a path of fulfillment, of meaning. This is it. This is the genuine article. This is worth dedicating oneself. I am raring to go. My hair is on fire. I'm willing to set aside all other desires. This is it. My mind is now unified. This is what I want to do. And then you get into your 12-cylinder Maserati, and you hit the, the start button, and you just 
you're ready to go, especially if you're only about 30 years old or so. You know. So you, you, know, <coughs> you know, just rev it, you know, give yourself a bit of kick. You know. Hit the accelerator once in a while, just to hear it roar. I am ready, man, am I ready to go. I am so ready to go. Man, do I want to achieve shamatha. And it's exactly at that point, say, now, now cool it. Now cool it. Now don't desire anything. Don't desire to achieve anything. Don't hope for anything. Don't fear for anything. No ambitions, no nothing. Now when you're there, now when you're actually doing it, now that you've done what needed to be done, and then mowing down all the grass of other desires and leaving only one desire standing. Good. Now drop that one. Now that your life is simplified and you've dropped all con concerns, your hopes and fears about the future and the past, as we've tried to do so many times, and now you're there right in the moment and you're attending to the space of the mind and what's coming up right now. In that moment, don't desire anything at all. Just be there, do the practice, and don't complicate it, don't elaborate, don't add on anything at all. No desire. No notion of achieving anything. In other words, right there in that moment, be totally content. Knowing in the back of your mind, this is achieving shamatha. This is called achieving shamatha. This is as good as it gets now, and that's good enough. And I'm doing it. And it's enough. And I'm doing it. and be unified right there in the present moment. Whatever's coming up, you just attend to it. Without no anticipation of what's coming after, what's gone be behind, and no anticipation, not even a thought of, what will I get out of this? Is this worth doing? Where's the payment? Where's the kickback? What do I get? What do I get? I'm doing the work. What do I get? No, this is what you get. This is it right now. Either be content or get off the cushion. Kind of tough. Be content doing this right now, or get off and do something. If you think there's something better to do, something more worthwhile, then take a hike. Go off and do it. Knock yourself out until you see this is it. Now note the progression, and that is in mindfulness of breathing. You remember my encouraging you that just be content to attend to the whole body of the breath, which is to say simply to be present the whole course of inhalation, whole course of exhalation, and be content. And another breath comes in, another, and you're there the whole time, and be content. And just finding I can really be content. This really is enough. I'm satisfied. I'm content. I'm happy enough. I'm content to be breathing in and breathing out and be doing so mindfully. And I don't need the hedonic stimulation. That's enormous. I don't need to be entertained, not by rumination, distracting thoughts, sensory. I don't need it. For the time being, this really is enough. I'm happy to just turn off the taps of hedonic stimulation. And this is enough. That's a big step. And that, your time span there, is one full inhalation, one full exhalation. So you've got some seconds there. Okay. One whole cycle went by, I'm content. Okay, another one coming, yeah, I'm content. But now when we come to settling the mind, now it, get, it narrows. Now it's, here's a little line of thought. Here's some flickering images. Here's an impulse. There's a memory coming up. There's a fantasy coming up. They come up in little chunks, little blobs, little spurts, little spasms, right? 
dot here, image there, and so forth and so on. And right there, as it's playing itself out, just being totally content. This is what I'm here for. This is it. And I'm content. Not even as long as a breath. It's just, and I was there. Good enough. You're not giving yourself this commentary. It's just this ongoing flow of, it's good enough. I'm content. I'm practicing Dharma. This is meaningful. There's no place I'd rather be. This is it. This is what I wanted more more than anything else, and now this is what I'm doing. Therefore, I'm already satisfied. And I don't have to worry about what I get out of this in the future. That will take care of itself. And then consider the practice we'll go to in the future. Awareness of awareness. And there, the time span is certainly not a whole in-breath, out-breath. That's like a, a glacial age. It's not the span of a thought or a sequence of images. That goes on and on and on for yeah, two or three seconds. When you're there in awareness of awareness, it's kind of like no duration at all. Right there in a moment, with no clear beginning or end, just spot on. Your awareness resting in its own nature, holding its own ground, and being content. I am being totally sane, and I'm making a habit of it. And that's got to be a good thing. In fact, it beats everything else, because being unseen, insane, and then doing other things on the basis of not being sane, oh, I'm tired of it. So now I'm just going to be making a big habit of being sane continually. And that's good enough. So now it's gotten really, sh- the time span gotten really, really short. Just the present moment, right? From a whole duration of in-breath, out-breath, to the duration of a sequence of a thought, to now just spot on in the present moment. And each time being content. And each time as we are content, we're more and more tightly turning off, turning off the valve of our addiction to hedonic stimulation, hedonic pleasure. And in turning off that valve, we're coming more and more and more into the immediacy of the present moment. And that's where you just drop right in. In the immediacy of the present moment, with no desires to be anywhere else, or anticipation of what's coming later or what's gone behind, that's where you just drop right in. And then you go right into the very source of your own well-being. You're tapping right into that bliss, that luminosity, that non-conceptuality of your own substrate consciousness. And it's a very fast track. It's a very straight track. And it's because you've, you've been a very good plumber, and you've turned off all the other valves. All the things, all the enticements, all the seductions, all the appeals, all the distractions that pull you out Maybe this, how about that, what about that? Oh, no, not that, oh, I hope not that, I hope that. You've turned off the valve of both hedonic unpleasant stimulation, hedonic pleasant stimulation, they say, okay, now it's just here. It's coming home. So you see, we become really skilled artisans here. It's very easy to go one way or the other, and I've seen, I've seen both of them a lot of people who get totally caught up in the bandwagon of let's achieve this and let's achieve that, let's study this text, let's master this, I want to get an Acharya degree, I want to become a Yeshe, I want to get a doctorate, I want to achieve this, I want to get this. And so, it's fine. It tends to tie us up in knots like crazy, you know, a lot. So there's one. 
And then I've seen people take such a nonchalant attitude about future life, no life, whatever, not my problem, let's just be here now, nothing to achieve. In the meantime, they're coming with a truckload of hedonic desires. And of course, in the absence of any competition, they're dominating the whole way of life. So they're, as Alfred North Whitehead said of religion about 90 years ago, 80 years ago, religion in general, he said religion has degenerated to the point that it's become an ornament for an already comfortable life. Meditation can do that. You've got an already comfortable life, things are going pretty well, but not quite as well as you'd like. How about a little bit of, a little bit of aperitif of Zen? How about even better, how about Dzogchen? Even more esoteric. Or Vipassana, I've heard it picks a very tasty aperitif. So lead your completely mundane way of life, all your worldview, your values, your way of life, always intact, all intact, as they were, unchallenged, unquestioned, unassessed, whatever you believe about future life, no future life, uncritical, not asking the question, and then just add a little dose of shamatha. I'm not leaving out these practices. Add a little dose of vipassana, zen, zokshan, mahamudra, stage regeneration, chu, dumo, whatever you like. Add a little dose. It's keeping a nice little seasoning for your hedonic way of life. Make it go down a bit smoother, a bit more pleasant. A little band-aid, a little Dzogchen band-aid. Okay. So one can have all of Dharma be in the service of hedonic well-being, and that sells very well, by the way. Or you can have all of your hedonic desires in the service of your spiritual practice. And then it all becomes meaningful, even the hedonic. It's not like meaningless, 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 and okay, now we're spiritual practice. Now it's meaningful. No. The meaning then embraces it all. Because then you say, but why are you, why are you going for a meal? Why are, you going, why are you taking a rest? Some of you get a bit fatigued on occasion. You go off and take a swim, go for a nice walk. That's not an excursion outside of your Dharma practice. That's part of your Dharma practice, being sensible, taking care of yourself in a loving way. Maybe occasionally go out and have a nice meal in the divine. That's not a departure, an excursion, going AWOL on your Dharma practice. No, that's the expression of your loving kindness. I'd like to have a really tasty, you know, really, really nice meal once in a while. Why not? That's part of your Dharma practice. But now you can see all those hedonic desires, from going to the bathroom, brushing your teeth, having a nice meal, exercising, and so forth. It's all in the service of that which is most meaningful. And it's all good. It's all good. Hola. I hope that's helpful. hope so. Let's practice. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states as you've done before.
Let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you, and turn the full force of your attention to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. Attending, first of all, to the thoughts, the discursive thoughts and images that arise in this space, the appearances that arise more objectively, and simply observe their nature without conceptual elaboration, letting them be without alteration, sustaining your mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Now and again, check up on your posture, on the respiration, to see that it's unimpeded, effortless, unforced, as you also monitor the flow of mindfulness.
And now while sustaining this mindfulness, this attentiveness to these more objective appearances such as thoughts and images, now expand three-dimensionally the scope, the domain of your attention to also take note of these more subjective impulses of emotions, desires, intentions. And as these arise and pass, come and go, to the best of your ability, let your awareness hold its own ground, remaining still, resting in its own place.
that the waves of emotions, of desires, even of mental afflictions, crash on the rock of your awareness without being moved as they arise and vanish of their own accord. And now take a special interest in the intervals between thoughts and images and other distinct mental events. Take a special interest in those moments of stillness where there appears to be no activity in the space of the mind. And attend closely to that space, sustaining the flow of knowing. Note its characteristics. As you observe more closely, you may note that that space is always there. It doesn't vanish when a thought arises. It is, in fact, the, spot, the space out of which that thought emerges, in which it is present, and into which it eventually dissolves. So attend closely now to that space of the mind that is always present.
now integrate all the three aspects of the practice that have been broken into sections. As you take the mind as the path, observe the space of the mind, and whatever objective appearances and subjective impulses, whatever mental events arise within that space, attend to the space of the mind and its contents without distraction, without grasping. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Golasso. I'll just read the, uh, the last question or statement. Oh, it's a statement of the question I read before. And it's a very good question, very thoughtful. And it's just the, um, the final conclusion to which I'll give a very brief response, and that is, of course, shamatha practice is a key to this whole issue of desires, releasing, relinquishing desires, but striving to achieve it can be an obstacle. Yes. And again, looking at it from both sides. If you don't strive to achieve it, you'll never achieve it. You'll never make the sacrifices. You'll, never, you'll just never do it. It won't happen. You'll be unshamata. You'll be shamata-free indefinitely. You know? So if you don't aspire to achieve it, you won't achieve it. It's not going to just drop on you like Santa Claus. On the other hand, when you're practicing, if you're still aspiring to achieve it, then you won't achieve it. Right? So it's quite nuanced. Quite nuanced. It's a, a very important skill to develop. And you know, it's true everywhere. It's, I mean, everywhere. It's true in so many contexts. I remember when I was studying, sorry if I'm rambling a little bit, but I remember when I was studying advanced calculus at, at Amherst, when I was studying physics. And I'd, I'm, not, I'm not mathematically gifted. I just had to study really hard and train really hard. And the big final examination was coming up. And I really wanted to do well. I, my grades were good. And I didn't want this to be lower than my other grades. And so I really, really wanted to do well. And I studied. I prepared. I really, you know, I came in. And then when I was in the classroom taking the exam, I so much wanted to do well that I screwed up. I was so tight that I knew actually I had trained exactly for the questions that were on the exam. I was perfectly prepared. And then I got the worst grade I got in the whole time at Amherst. Because um, I was desiring while I was taking the exam. You shouldn't do that when you're taking the exam. Just take the exam. Forget about whether you're going to do well or badly. Just problem by problem, just do it. Okay? How many other cases are like that? You really want a marriage to work out, turn out well? Then just be good. <laughs> but if you're always hoping, 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 that's just going to get in the way. It's just going to screw up the marriage. And likewise for so many other things. So this is a skill worth developing. And a, but this is such an interesting point. I cannot resist. And that is, here's a good qualm to throw back at me. I haven't given you a chance, so I'm throwing it back at me. All right. This notion... Like my hair is on fire, I want to achieve liberation. Okay? Good Shravagayana aspiration. I want to achieve liberation. How about I want to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings? Isn't that grasping? Isn't that grasping? Isn't it dualistic? I want that. I haven't achieved it yet. I hope I get it. I aspire to get it. Isn't that just grasping? And the answer is yes, it is grasping. But it's better than almost every other kind. <laughs> right? And having said that, once you've let this, like a great big bull elephant coming into you know, the mind center, and we all flee, you know, and he's the only one standing, big bull elephant, you know? Okay? One big bull elephant comes in, one great big aspiration to achieve perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, and all the other ones, ooh, big bull elephant come in. They slip into the background. It's still grasping. But then you might recall that statement from Dingu Kenzuramuchi. When you come, when you're coming right towards the culmination of the path, right there at the end, then you release even that. Do you remember? You come to the point where you release any desire for, liber for enlightenment, any preference for enlightenment versus for nirvana versus samsara. Any preference. That means now finally you've done all the hard work. Now just let it go. And then then you awaken. And it's not just then. 
arouse a great aspiration. Some of you have a lot of background in Tibetan Buddhism, so you may have a real preparation of refuge, taking bodhi, of bodhicitta, maybe some guru yoga, devotional practice, seven limb, seven limb devotion, and so forth, before you launch into the main practice. That's all, really, it's all desire, 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 and then you start and then you release it, right? Now, what's the point? And I gave the analogy, some of you heard it already. I hope this is useful because it's taking up time, but I think it's important. And that is when you're settling the mind in this natural state. It came up just today in one of the meetings. Somebody asked, if I find that the thoughts that are coming up are somewhat related, right? Not necessarily a full narrative, but the first one comes up and the other one has some association with it. And then another one, and somehow related. Is that an indication of grasping? The answer is, yeah, there's probably a bit of grasping there. If it's a full-fledged narration or a free association where this reminds me of that and that reminds me of that and that reminds me of that, that's just full-fledged grasping is taking place. And it's linking all of those beads of this thought, that memory, that memory, this thought. So those are like beads, and the grasping is linking them all together so you have a kind of a coherent narrative, and it's called daydreaming, right? But it's the grasping that's linking those different thoughts, images, and so forth together, right? And so as you more and more release in this whole gradient of going to releasing into subtler and subtler and subtler grasping, then there comes more of a, a, a loss of coherence as you're just settling the mind into natural state that it's just a thought of this. And then, poof, another thought. Can't see any connection. And then another thought. And then a melody. And then a can of tomatoes. And then, you know, just like that. And so your mind is melting, the rigidity, the crystallization, the locked-in grasping of the mind. It's softening, it's melting. So you're just getting these little displays coming up. And your mind really is settling. And then, of course, gradually, the displays decrease in volume and intensity. Your mind is gradually settling in its natural state. Well, there's a strong metaphor. And that is, and now this is, now that's just true. That's, we can test for our own experience. And now something not so easy to test, but can eventually be, Let's just, for the, for the moment, let's assume, or taking as a working, working hypothesis, whatever you like, let's imagine the Buddhist view is true. There's a continuity of consciousness, and there's life after life. Okay? Each life, then, can be understood like a bead. It has, its own, it has its own fullness. It started, and it ended, and it lasts for 20 years, 80 years, whatever, but it has its, you know, it's got its borders. Right? There's your, that was your life. You could look at it and say, that was the whole thing. That's why I was conceived. That's where I breathed my last. And there it was. It's like a bead. Right? And that bead in the Buddhist understanding is propelled, it's conditioned, it's thrown up by the power of karma, aspirations, desires, and so forth, virtue, non-virtue. But there's a bead. If there is no grasping, if there's no aspiration that goes beyond the context of this life, all your desires are within this life, including your Dharma desires, your meditative practice, everything, ethical practice, compassion, all of that, if it all is simply confined within the context of this life and your thoughts never leap the fence, none of your priorities, values, desires go beyond the fence, beyond the context of this life. This means all your grasping is going to be only in this life. That which makes your life coherent is all going to be, that is, the coherence maker, that which makes things cohere, congeal, make sense will all be in time in the, in, within the context of this one life because you never go beyond it. Your grasping, your, your aspirations, your dedication never go beyond it. So then when you have another one, you'll be prepared by the, propelled by the karma of this one, and that will be its own unit. 
And if you lived a virtuous life, good, that'll be a, that'll be a nice life. That'll give rise to for, you know, felicity. But now in this lifetime, will you again, will your momentum be up enough? I take this very much to heart, very personally. Virtuous life here, good. But of course, was it just virtue? Did you just practice virtue the whole life? Just one continuous stream of benevolence and altruism and wisdom and just... Or was it kind of like maybe broken up a little bit with craving, hostility, delusion, being unkind on occasion? So do you have just a nice smooth porridge of virtue the whole way? In which case, you're in good shape. But if you have more of a mixed stew of a whole bunch of impulses, a whole bunch of kind of activities, some of them pretty gnarly, some kind of like pretty rotten, and some are virtuous and a lot are kind of just mundane, but you have just a whole higgledy-piggledy, just a whole array of a wide variety, but there's enough virtue to get you into another nice, good, fortunate rebirth, and there's some virtue there. But since you had all those different impulses, not just virtuous, which one's going to be dominant in this life? Will you be captivated by dharma? Will you be really drawn to dharma, committed to dharma? Or will something else captivate your attention that time? Maybe it will be business. Maybe it will be farming. Maybe it will be fishing. Who knows? You know? And so where's your confidence that the momentum of virtue, that momentum of commitment to dharma, to a meaningful life, to genuine happiness, is it strong enough to carry over into the next one so this too will be really devoted to an ongoing spiritual evolution? Or since all of your hopes, desires, aspirations were confined here, is this one going to be, well, good luck with you. But you have to start all afresh. Right? So you remember the analogy of different thoughts coming up strung together with grasping. Well, this whole issue of motivation and then dedication of merit. That's grasping. There's no question about it. Very benevolent, but it is grasping. Right? That grasping, that's the, the cord, that's the thread that ties these beads together. That from now until I achieve perfect enlightenment, may I never be separated from the guru. That's one big Vajrayana Mahayana aspiration. May I never be separated from authentic spiritual teachers and guides, authentic, genuine spiritual friends. May I never be separated from Dharma in all of my lifetimes. That's grasping, right? And that's also the cord that will, that will string one bead to the another to the another, that there's coherence there. And your virtue will be always directed there. Virtue can be going in all different directions, to be incredibly, magnificently beautiful, to be incredibly powerful, wealthy, influential, loved, having incredible prestige, power, all kinds of things. Where's your virtue going to go? And if your aspirations are entirely with this life, that's probably where it's going to go, into mundane felicity. Beautiful, rich, wealthy, really successful. And then you'll die. So that which strings them together, so that from, from day to day, decade to decade, lifetime to lifetime, there's an ongoing coherence, an ongoing true spiritual evolution, a maturation, an unfolding along a path, and it's all strung together with aspiration, with dedication, with motivation, this dedication of merit, so that every lifetime, all of your virtue has gone there to continue and to continue and whether it's three lifetimes or three countless eons, it's all there to continue, to continue until you come, until finally your aspiration comes to the point of fulfillment. So one of my teachers, you might have heard this story, some of you, Ananda Maitreya, the Theravada teacher, not, not Mahayana, Theravada teacher, brilliant one. His name was Ananda Maitreya. I knew him when he was about 80 in 1980, 81. 
I don't know when it first arose in him, maybe from childhood on, but he had this great aspiration. It was that which gave coherence to his whole life. And that is his motivation, his prayer, his prayer of dedication as a Theravada monk, I think pretty much his whole life, was his aspiration, what he dedicated his merits to was he wanted, he had a passionate yearning to become the personal attendant of the Buddha Maitreya when he eventually comes, however long that may be. Ananda Maitreya. To become the Ananda for Maitreya. That was his great yearning. So when he was about 40, born at the beginning of the century, when he was about 40, he was already a very accomplished monk. He was a yogi. He was just a superb practitioner. And his guru, his Vipassana guru, told him, you're, you've ripened so well, you've so matured in the practice, that you're very close to becoming stream-enterer. So simply continue practicing Vipassana, and you'll become stream-enterer. All you have to do is continue. And so what did he do? He stopped practicing Vipassana. Because he didn't want to become stream-enterer, not now, not in this lifetime, because Maitreya could be quite a distance away. And once you become stream-enterer, you're going to achieve arhatship within nine lifetimes. Whether you like it or not, you will achieve. And then in the Theravada understanding, you achieve arhatship. You never come back. You'll never see Maitreya. Because you will have kissed samsara goodbye forever before Maitreya comes. He didn't want to achieve nirvana before Maitreya comes. So he stopped practicing Vipassana to make sure that you know, he won't achieve liberation from nirvana too quickly. Because he wants to make sure he's still around when Maitreya comes. So he can come and then may I, and ask him, may I be your attendant? And one would certainly hope Maitreya would say yes. <laughs> really, this guy, that was a lot of dedication there. So there it is. This all I, I, I find personally very, very meaningful. Because when I think worst, worst case scenario for the future, this is just me, so no big deal. But a notion of life without dharma is the worst. Let alone anything worse than that, that's already the worst. Life without no spiritual friends, no authentic teacher, no dharma, no genuine dharma, no path. Just welcome to planet Earth, dude. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. What do you want to do? You know? Get a job, raise a family, die. Life without Dharma. Whoa. That gets me back to my cushion. Oh yeah. Mail has built up. Let's see if there's any quick ones so I can at least get rid Okay. What are the differences between Dzogchen and Mahamudra? Okay, I can give a quick one. Dzogchen and Mahamudra, very good question, and my opinion is worthless, but Kamachamarambache, his opinion is worth a lot because he was a master of both. In the Bayul tradition, great master of the Karmakayu tradition, Mahamudra, great tradition of, great master of the Bayu tradition of Nyingma. And I've translated two of his books, Spacious Path to Freedom, Naked Awareness. And he says, Dzogchen is consist, bona fide Dzogchen practice consists of two phases, Tekchur and Tritgyal. Tekchur is a direct breakthrough to pristine awareness. Tritgyal is the full manifestation of the power of Buddha mind. So you become perfectly awakened. Mahamudra, he said, Mahamudra practice is for all practical purposes the same as the Tekchur phase of Dzogchen. Minute, very little variations in terminology. The practice, the method, the view is essentially the same. It's the same. Right. In the Mahamudra tradition, they don't have tutgel, the direct crossing over to spontaneous actualization. That's unique to Dzogchen. So does this mean that people who follow Mahamudra 
don't achieve perfect enlightenment. Of course not. But they won't do it if they're just following the Mahamudra tradition, as in the Kagyut tradition, don't venture into Dzogchen. They will practice Mahamudra, gain direct realization of Rigpa in that way. That's quite enough. That's quite something. But then you need to bring forth the full power of Dhammakaya, Buddha mind, Buddha nature. And for that, they have other practices. For example, the six yogas of Naropa. Add Mahamudra to the six, uh, six yogas of Naropa. That's a complete package. Or stage of generation and completion of Kala Chakra, the Jonangma tradition, which is a subcategory subcat- of Kagyupa. They have Mahamudra, of course. Then they have stage of generation and completion of Kala Chakra. That's enough. You don't need to do Dzogchen. That's, that's enough. But in Dzogchen, you don't necessarily have to practice stage of generation, stage of completion. You may, and it can really help the practice. But Tekchutkyo, that's sufficient. So that's what that. Do you have advice for someone who is drawn to the Vajrayana path of discovery but is unsure of which tradition to practice? Sure. Path of discovery of Vajrayana, sure. Um, yeah, very practical question. And there are some really marvelous lamas still alive, some of them happily still from, from Tibet itself. And also, I should add, some who have escaped more recently, over the last 10, 20 years, and not just in 1959. But come what may, there are from all, from all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, there's still some very accomplished masters who are teaching Vajrayana, giving empowerment and all of that, the whole thing. And so to, first of all, check the credentials, and the internet is quite, quite sufficient for that, such and such a lama's coming. Good, who is he? What's his lineage? Who were his teachers? Who are his peers? What do his peers say about him? You know, other, if it's a gulupa, good. What do the other gulupa lamas say? You know, what does the Dalai Lama say? Does he say anything about such and such a person? And in some cases, the answer is yes. Yes, definitely. I could say, for, for example, Jado, Jado Ramache, who lives in Dharmazala. I've met him. I've received empowerment from him. Dalai Lama gives him big thumbs up. Very, very good monk. Very good. Very good monk, Tuku, uh, Vajrayana teacher, master. Very, very good. So that really counts for something. That counts for a lot. And the heads of the other traditions, uh, Kempo Namdurl in the Nyingma tradition, one of the five abbots now of, of, of uh, Benurmachi's Namdurling monastery. Well, he's outstanding. Everybody knows that. So anybody he would recommend, well, you can, you can count on it. They'll be really good because he has very high standards. And likewise in the Sakya tradition, likewise the Kagyu tradition. So find those who are, it's just kind of like in physics. Okay, who, who are the physicists at MIT and at Cambridge University and Stanford University and Caltech? Take a good sprinkling. Okay, who do they say is really good? And they will know. So make sure you're going to is not a flake, and you can find that out on the internet. And then you need to find out, is this a person that I have a good affinity for? Does this, does this Lama's teaching, do these Lama's teachings, this Lama's teaching, are they really helpful? Do I resonate with them? Am I inspired by them? Do I want to practice them? And when I do practice them, are they helpful? Because they should not be a blind faith-based kind of deal. And so in that way, you can check out. Check out different tif- traditions, different lineages. Some emphasizing six yogas of Naropa, some emphasizing maybe Kala Chakra, some emphasizing Vajra Yogini, and so forth and so on, Mahamudra, Dzogchen. And then find, if, if pardon a really crude analogy, but like going to a shoe store and finding which shoe fits, where it really feels good, it's the kind of, the kind of shoe you really needed, you can go from here to there. And then you, when you've tested it out a bit, and you see, yes, number one, is the Lama authentic? Make sure of that. Because bad Lamas can really, they can really screw you up big time, not only for this lifetime, but future ones. You want to make sure you get somebody authentic. And then, and then it must be a good fit. And then you should put it into practice, see if it's helpful. 
develop a personal relationship, if at all possible, with the Lama. In some cases, it's hard. Like, you know, very famous ones like Dalai Lama, not so easy. And, but when you find that combination, then go for it. And that'll be good, good enough. And when you really have that heartfelt connection, here's what the beauty of it, is that, um, you know, in the mundane world, we, so we, are, we all know that it does happen that, for example, a man and woman will meet each other and it's love at first, first sight. Okay, it happens. Love at first sight, friendship at first sight, animosity at first sight. Somebody just gives you the creeps from the first time you see them, you don't want, know why, you're just like... Yeah. So what's up with that? From, a Buddhist, from the Buddhist perspective, yeah, you've got major karma here. Maybe you, maybe you had a very adversarial relationship with a person in a past life, and it's coming up. It's coming up. Or maybe there are, there are couples who marry time and time again, from lifetime to lifetime. You know, love at first sight. Good. I do again. <laughs> you know, so that can happen too. So in terms of mundane relationships, it, can, it does happen. And it can lead to a deepening, richer, 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 more and more meaningful relationship. Can, right? But then all the more for a guru-disciple relationship. There are disi- I know from the first time I actually directly was in the same room with this whole Dalai Lama. Before then, frankly, I really didn't have much interest. That just hearing the name Dalai Lama, seeing his photo, that didn't do anything for me at all. I just thought he was a king. I really did. I just thought he was a king. He was appointed. What's the big deal? But I knew, I knew there were really great lamas. I was looking elsewhere. I was kind of like, okay, who's behind you, you know? And then I had my first meeting with him. And I knew this is my teacher. This is my lama. He has been ever since. That was 1971. I mean, just the words he spoke to me, his presence, that was it. Very clear. The first book I picked up on Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation. That's it. This is it. And it was Dzogchen. And I hardly understood anything. But still, I knew enough. I didn't know anything. But the intuition was there. Oh, this is it. This is it. So I, meant, I must have, you know, I, I might have been some really great lama's dog or something. I had some kind of connection with Dharma in the past. Uh, because it came up very strongly. And it kind of set the whole course for a life. I hope for all of my lifetimes until I've achieved enlightenment. And one of the prayers I've offered many, many times to not just His Holiness, but other lamas of mine. And I'm just talking here, so I'm rambling, sorry. But, um, you know, pretty much whenever I have a, a quiet moment with His Holiness, I just ask Him. In all my future lives, please catch me with a hook of your compassion. I never want to be separated from your guidance. Ever. If that happens, it'll be okay. Wherever, whatever, wherever, whenever, whatever. Be fine. I have a lot of confidence in that. But that's when you have a connection. You don't push it. When it happens, it happens. Or it may just come slowly. It may come just slowly. Gatudam, which I met a number of times, just as this is a lama, he was a lama, the husband, the lama of one of my oldest Dharma friends. I met him, thought he was a good lama. Met him, met him, met him then receive teachings from him. Oh. So for Dzogchen, oh, good connection. So I ask him also the same. For Dzogchen, perfect. And for other lamas as well. So is this grasping? Yeah, it is. It is. It's grasping. But among the different types of grasping, this is one of the most benign. And give coherence to a lifetime, to multiple lifetimes, so that, what's this all for? So you can be a good Buddhist? No. 
so that your heart's desire can be realized. And that you can actually discover what your heart's desire is. That's why. And it may take more than one lifetime. But that should be okay. okay. So, I think I'm becoming an old man. Rambling on. Rambling on. But I listen to the words. I find them very meaningful. So maybe a few other people do too. Hope so. Okay. Good. Enjoy your dinner. See you soon. <laughs>